uh, to care for my lawn. So when I think about what he's faced or what he faced, it's it's pretty remarkable to me. I, I after that, my father went to work for President Carter as one of his deputy assistants, and so in his young forties, he was working at the White House, and then for the balance of his career in a couple of different states. He worked as a reorganizer, somebody who would go to teacher unions in states in Illinois and Florida and take what was a mess, and he became known as somebody who had amazing administrative skills, had the capacity to kind of give people a notion of what the future might look like and, and then rally people around an idea and bring people together in teams to accomplish these things. The other thing that uh, my dad was pretty well known for, as you can imagine, in those capacities, in order to do those well, you'd have to have uh, the ability to speak well. And so my dad has a pretty substantial vocabulary. He's highly educated. He, he speaks with great clarity and diction. If you, if you talk with my father, he's, he's a consummate politician. He looks you in the eyes. He speaks very clearly to you. Um, and so when you're talking with him, you get this sense that, wow, he's really listening to me. Whether he is or not, uh, you know, is, is debatable, and that's true for all of us men. But my particular case, uh, there were times and there have been times over the course of my 20-year career in ministry where I have had on a vastly smaller scale, uh, people say to me, it seems like your gifts are in the area of organizing, and it seems like you are a communicator. And my dad was a mathematics teacher before he went into labor organizing. So if my memory serves me correct, my dad was a teacher who organized and started things and could communicate. And I am a college teacher who church plants. This is the second church that I've organized. And I teach communications and speech at a college. Now, there are some that would say that that's genetics, there were some that would say that that has something to do with his influence in my life and how I looked up to him. One way or another, what you can't deny is that my father and his characteristics can be seen in me, his son. Now, the downside of that is equally true. I can't begin to tell you how big of a liability it is for me in pastoral ministry to have a short fuse and a propensity for salty language. Now, I just say that as a kind of a side note. I mean, over the years, God has uh, sanctified that in me. But my dad, you know, had a colorful vocabulary. Let's just say that. And so when you say, oh, I'm going to be a pastor, and you all of a sudden, you got to all of a sudden, you realize, you know, you can't get away with the same kind of words they get away with in my dad's context of work. People don't like their pastors to have short tempers, short fuses. They're kind of fond of that. Uh, in his world, it was, you know, very strong and very leadership, very, you know, very admired. Look at this guy. He's just marshalling the people. And in my world, nobody wants their pastor to bite their heads off. They just kind of look at it, you know, not well. Let's just say that. I'm sure you're, you'd be glad you've never experienced that. I know for a fact that one of the things that the disciples wanted to know at times, and you can read this in John chapter 14, where Peter asks Jesus, and the other disciples kind of join in behind him, and they say, show us the Father. 
And Jesus is somewhat distraught. He says, you know, I've been with you all this time and you still don't know me. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I, I, I say all this because we are at the conclusion of a three-month study about redemption and its effect on the church and what it means for us to collectively be redeemed, what it means for us to be messengers of this message of redemption. And this month, we've been looking at the the concept of the body of Christ and what it means for us to be a collective that corporately represents Jesus and what that means, practically speaking, as we interact with each other as a young church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. And in verse 27 Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. We have walked through this acronym, body, to show that Christ is the head of the church. That's our first letter of B, which is brain-directed. Everybody is led by the head, and Jesus is our head. Not the pastor, not the elders. Jesus is the head of the church. And he works through leaders within a church. But it's important for us to all know that when we talk about the body, that the head is the Lord Jesus Christ. We also looked at O, which is uh, all of us, all right, uh, uh, operating together. But there is a sense in which God has called all the members of the church to function in their particular gifted, in their particular areas of giftedness. And, and we looked at the, go- the gospel's application to that, and that if you're not comfortable or secure about what your gifts are, you'll either aspire to be something you're not, or you will just drop out of service within the body because you'll feel like you're insignificant. And how important it is for the gospel to take root in our lives, for us to say we're loved by God, we're known by God, uh, and we can be assured in our hearts of his love and value in us regardless of what role you feel like you need to play in the church. D, we looked at last week, the subject of division. Actually, the D stands for um, damaged collectively. Thank you. Damaged collectively. We, we looked at what happens in the body of Christ when parts are hurt and parts are wounded. When people who feel insignificant, what happens to them when they begin to be marginalized within a church and how if they're not careful and they're not dealing with that, they can create division and how it is the responsibility of people who are in leadership and caring for others. It is important for them to be able to know that they are responsible to love and care for the parts that we quote unquote, that seem less important, but really aren't. It's a mutual commitment to each other that we're going to work through our difficulties, that we're going to honor one another above ourselves. And, and the church is full of a history of division and damage that happens when one part of the body is hurt, the entire part of the body hurts. And then finally today, our why of body is that the ultimate goal of the body of Christ is to yield glory to God. This is the end of man, according to the Westminster Catechisms. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, this word glorify like I need to address this real quick because it is so much church speak and uh, no matter what you 
uh, know the term to be, it is likely that at some point in your Christian experience, when someone said, does that glorify the Lord? That translates in my head anyway, be good. All right, so this is, this is all I could hear when people would say, I just want to glorify the Lord. What they meant was, I just want to be good. That became like a synonym for behavioral modification. And there's a danger in seeing it that way because what it means is that it's about you being good instead of Jesus being seen. The word glory actually means weight. And it speaks of the real presence of God. Moses experienced this in Exodus on a number of occasions. The glory of the Lord shone to him. The people saw the cloud outside the tent of meeting. The glory of God was evident. The, the, the real presence of the holy God was manifest. And it was in this presence, in this glory, that the people went, wow, I've got to deal with this. This is amazing. This is weighty. This is heavy. The glory of God is the character of God. It is the real personhood of God. It is the holiness, if you will, the, the, the characteristics and the, the attributes of God. And the goal in all of our assembling and all the things that we do collectively as a church is that people, us and our culture at large, would see a manifestation of, of the glory of God. That in the same way the Israelites would stand outside their, their little huts and watch Moses walk into the tent of meeting and the cloud would be gathered around the outside of this tent of meeting. You can read about this yourself in Exodus. This is what they were seeing is what we hope our world sees. We hope individually that we get to see this. We get to see the glory of God. Our missional community, which is our midweek study in Duarte, we have one in South Pasadena. We have a women's study that meets here on uh, Tuesday mornings. These groups of people that are doing life and mission together and studying scripture and praying for each other. Our community came to the conclusion in our discussion of this sermon series that it is antithetical to the gospel and the ultimate in foolishness for us to boast about our own giftedness or position. Because whatever gifts you and I have, whatever capabilities we have, whatever opportunities we've been given, all of these things are gifts from God. And it is foolish for me to forget that and to begin to treat others as if I'm superior to them because I have been given something from God that they haven't been given. There's no room in the body of Christ for that. The essence of the gospel is that everything we are and everything that we are capable of doing and everything that we have is a gift from God. And ultimately, it should lead us to worship him. And more importantly, it should lead others to see through us the glory of God. It should lead to the magnification. It should lead to the the positioning of him in the highest place. They should look at us and not say, wow, what great servants of God. They should look at us and say, wow, what a great God they serve. The distinction may be subtle, but it's not. It's monumental. The ultimate goal in all of this 
is really what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 1, when he said, as he looked toward heaven, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And it may seem strange to us, particularly in the individualistic, materialistic North American continent or culture and country in which we live. But I got to tell you, God is concerned that we would see his glory because that is what is best for us. And so I'm going to look real quickly today at how God is glorified in our midst. How, and again, I want to make sure you understand that we're not talking about how we are going to be good glorified, but how we are going to actually, according to the scriptures and according to the prayer of Jesus, we are going to get to see the manifestation of the character of God, of the attribute of God. And the first, uh, first thought I'll share with you this morning is this. God is glorified when there is unity like the Trinity. Look at John 17, verses 2 through 5. Jesus was praying... For you granted him authority over all people, he's speaking of himself, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So we walk through this verse. It's, it, there are a handful of things that you absolutely have to be able to see. Now, you can disagree with them if you want. But if we are to trust Scripture that these are actually the words of Jesus, Jesus is the one who says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, they may know you the only true God. One of the things that's true about a pluralistic society is that people take great offense to the, only no, to the notion of onlys, the only true God. I was sharing Christ with a person recently, and as I was talking to them about Jesus of Nazareth being, according to John 14, 6, the only means of receiving forgiveness from God, because Jesus was, according to the scriptures, God incarnate, God in the flesh, he was sacrificed so that we wouldn't have to pay for our sins. And I talked about how I thought this was universally true, that all over the world, people could know forgiveness, and according to Scripture, only through the sacrifice of Christ. I was accused at that moment of being ethnocentric. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, this means that I see the world through my North American grid. And the, the popular conception would be that I have Christianity, and it is a North American religion, and I am reading my world through my personal North American filter. And so I am ethnocentric. Now, this is true in a lot of ways. I mean, this is true in our culture. It's probably true for all of us to some degree. I mean, you can't not grow up in our country and not think our country's great. Go America. You know, you can't, you know, have been here on 9-11 and not tear up when you hear a country singer talk about you know, the, the need for us to come together as a country, serve the Lord, or whatever it is that they say we're supposed to be doing in the South. I'm just saying, there's no question that there is a degree to which all of us are going to be influenced by our environment to see the world our way. But to say that the claim that Jesus is the only means to forgiveness is ethnocentric 
would be to presume that Jesus was North American. Jesus was not. In fact, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. And so if anything, Jesus is ethnocentric because he is the one saying, you're the only true God and eternal life, real life, is knowing me, Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so if Jesus is guilty of ethnocentrism, fine, take it out with him. But I'm simply a North American in the 21st century repeating the words of a Jewish carpenter. And so if anything, I'm guilty of being influenced by Middle Eastern Judeo-Christian theology. This is not a North American thing. As a matter of fact, the North American part of it is usually what screws up the gospel. The introduction of God is here to serve our needs and God is here to make us wealthy and comfortable. These are ethno-translated versions of Christianity. Jesus, on the other hand, according to the scriptures, is God. In verse 24 of John chapter 17, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. And again, when Jesus said in verse 4, or verse 5, I'm sorry, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before you, with you before the world began, Jesus is placing himself not as one of a series of prophets who've walked the earth to point you to God. He is placing himself eternally in the presence of the Father. He is equating himself in being with God. He is saying, I, and he may be wrong. So if you're a skeptic or you're listening via internet and you say, I don't agree with that, I think he's right. I think he proved that by the resurrection. We'll talk about that next week. But there's no question that the text makes it very clear that Jesus is saying, before anything was created, I was in existence. I predated this world, not just in the mind of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, here's a good piece of scripture from the Apostle Paul. I read the word. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He is the head of the church. We are his body. Jesus is supreme, and not just because he's better than all of us. He preexisted with the Father. According to the Nicene Creed, which many of us grew up saying, he is God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, 
not made. And how appropriate that today on Palm Sunday, which is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the praises of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that we would acknowledge the deity of Christ. This Trinitarian formula, and what I mean by that is is the, the notion that is a Christian notion, that there is one God, one true God, but he manifests himself, he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This formula was pulled together based on the reality that in Scripture, three different persons are assigned the the title of God. God the Father, obviously. Jesus himself is referring to himself as co-equal with the Father. Through him all things were made. And then, of course, in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus talks about another, the counselor, the spirit of truth. So you've got this then finally really formulized in Jesus' words in Matthew 28 where Jesus says that the followers of Christ are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is not something that Christians created. This is something that Jesus himself said, there's a Father, there's a Son, there is a Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean it's easy to understand the concept of three persons in one being. It just means that the reality about this Godhead is that the scriptures testified that it existed before the creation of the world. That there was a Father, that there was a Son, that there was a Spirit. That these three had conversations about creation and redemption before anything was ever created. They had these conversations with each other in the scriptures. In the Trinity, each person had a role in creation and in redemption. Scripture tells us that God the Father spoke the world into creation. We read in Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, is repeated all throughout Genesis. And God said. We also know, obviously, that through him, all things were made. You can read about this in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. And then we're also told in Genesis 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters at the time of creation. With regards to our redemption, our reconciliation, this reality of the gospel that we've been brought back into relationship with the Father through the sacrifice of Christ, the three persons of the Trinity were involved in this too. The Father loved the world and sent His Son. The Son sent by the Father came into the world so it could be saved through Him. The Father did the sending, the Son did the going. And then Jesus promised the Holy Spirit a guarantee of our inheritance. And these descriptions of the relationship that exists in between the Trinity are to serve as a model for you and I in many ways. Tim Keller says this, The one God is a community a trinity of three persons who each perfectly know and defer to one another and love one another and therefore have infinite joy and glory and peace. God made a good, beautiful world filled with beings who share in this life of joy and peace by knowing, serving, and loving God and one another. Because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally existed in perfect harmony, because they have different roles and play different parts in the in the vision and the will of God, whether it's creation or redemption, 
When you and I function in unity, when we accept the roles that we've been given, the gifts that we've been given, we, through the gospel, find ourselves at rest with whatever part of the body God has designed us to be and believe that we are valued by him in spite of the fact that we may not be something that the world considers really important. When we function in those roles together in harmony and in unity, God is seen in us. In this communal unity, we get to see visibly the character of God. God is glorified. He's magnified. He is seen when there is unity like the Trinity. And it's not just about us living in community to improve our lives. It certainly will do that as a byproduct. The entirety of the gospel is to bring the glory of God to men. And it is the one, it is, it is well, it's one of the means by which we get to see God. And people get to see him in us. Facebook is really fascinating. You can post pictures of yourself, and then people that you haven't seen in years can see what you look like and go, wow, you've aged poorly, or or some variation thereof. Of course, we all take our best pictures and put them on Facebook. You know, I like you. Don't go through there and, like, put the one that makes me, the bad angle that makes me look a little overweight. The uplook is a good one in Facebook. You know, that always makes you look thin and fresh. You know what I'm saying? Also, I'll post pictures from time to time, like I'll scan a photo, because back in my day, everything was on a piece of paper, and you scan it now. Now it's digitized. And I have in the past scanned pictures of myself from high school and had friends of mine, contemporary friends of mine, comment, that looks like your son Nick. They see a picture of me from high school and go, That's not Chuck, that's Nick. I've also had the distinction of proudly posting pictures of my son and had friends of mine from high school write, my goodness, he really is your son. I mean, there's no way in the world that kid is somebody else's boy because when they look at my son at age 18, they remember me at age 18 and go, that's amazing, I see him. This is really what God is after when we're talking about glorifying him collectively. That people would look at us in our unity and go, wow, those people know and walk with God. God's glorified when there's unity like the Trinity. And secondly today, God is glorified when the community loves like divinity. God is glorified when the community loves like divinity. My prayer is not for them alone, it says in verses 20 through 23. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you uh, have loved me. This last piece of this verse sounds an awful lot like another verse maybe you're familiar with, Jesus' words in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, where Jesus says, A new command I give you, 
love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my, you're my disciples if you love one another. One of the things that all of us inherently are looking for is the assurance that God is real and that he actually does like us. I know that sounds sort of like, you know, very stripped down vernacular as it comes to God, but I have to tell you on a personal level, I'm really, you know, the idea, the concept of the love of God for all creation, John 3.16, for God so loved the cosmos, that's really out there, and I can almost say, you know, yeah, sure, God loves everybody. The question I want to know is, is what is God's disposition towards me? And in my modern-day terminology, I can say about a lot of people, I love them. Kind of like in a Christian way, I love them. Oh, sure, I love them. But if you ask me privately, I might say, I can't stand that person. You know, or you might say, I really don't like that person very much. I've often had people say, are we required to like everybody in the church? And I go, well, I mean, it's very hard to say what your emotions and feelings are. Love is a verb. It's an action. We say, I'm going to love you well. That means I'm going to work for your best. I'm going to honor you above myself. I'm going to put you in front of me and your needs first. So in that sense, it has nothing to do with emotions. It has everything to do with the act of the will to love one another. When it comes to disposition, this is where I say, most, if not all, of my motivation for serving God is born out of knowing whether or not he actually has affection for me. You know, there have been multiple critics of the, of the, of the book of The Shack. And I don't know if you've read it. I think it's worth reading, even if you can glean the nature of the affection of God from it. Now, it's not a theological treatise, so... And I don't go online with a bunch of goofballs on the internet and start critiquing it. It's, it's really a novel written to help you see the emotion that God has, the disposition that God has for his people, especially in their moment of woundedness. And one of the thoughts that I, I keep coming back to on a personal level over and over and over again, it, like a tennis ball banging around inside my head, is a, a phrase that gets used in that novel all the time where the character of God says to the, to the main character of the book, God is particularly fond of you. I'm particularly fond of you. What is it in us that resists that notion? Is it that we are broken and fallen? Is that we don't know the affection of God towards us? There's something seriously lacking with us if our gospel understanding, if the atoning sacrifice of Christ and the propitiation for our sins and all of the intricacies of Christian theology are present in your understanding, and yet there's nothing that has really transformed you at the most, at the most deep level, at the, mo- at the depths of your soul, where you can rest that God's particularly fond of you, that he actually likes you that he enjoys hanging out with you. He's not just putting up with you. He created you singularly unique, that he loves you. And when we love each other like this, when we like each other for who God made us to be, when we shower affection, praise, and honor on one another, 
when we love as Jesus loved, Jesus says, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. All the sharp theology and all of the intricacies of faith that we may feel like are important for us to cling to and maybe even defend at some level don't mean much if you're to listen to that verse we all hear at weddings that love, love is about doing, it's about caring. And if you have all these things, including theological precision, but you don't have love, you're just like a gong. Bong! You're just noise. The scriptures tell us that within the church and outside amongst the city, when the body of believers, that's us, the body of Christ is functioning, it quite literally is an incarnation of Jesus in our time. As Jesus was divine and brought into the humanity of our world and was both fully divine and fully human and functioned so that he could save us and that he could show the character of God with us and to us, in much the same way you and I, as the body of Christ, are his incarnation to the world so that they can see him. Now, we're not talking about us saving the world. That's something that happens between Jesus and people. But in the same way that Jesus came to both save the world, rescue the world, that he was incarnated to bring about and settle all debts with God the Father, and he also was to show the character of God. We are to do the same. We are to show what Jesus has done and to demonstrate the character of God. Christ is both our message and our model. And his work alone is what we proclaim is sufficient. And his our incarnation, his coming to earth is uniquely his, but we're called to be his present representatives living incarnationally as his body. And that practically means we have both the opportunity and the obligation to demonstrate the love of God to each other and to those in our lives. By doing so, we glorify, we magnify. People get to see the character of God in the kind of love that Jesus would have, a Jesus love that is sacrificial, a Jesus love that is selfless, a Jesus love that is lavish and generous. You do these things and the people will notice. We do these things for each other and the culture will notice. The problem with the church, friends, is not our theology. The problem, in large part, at least in the Orthodox church, is we don't love each other very well and nobody thinks it's impressive that we know a lot. (laughs) I mean, really and truly, you blow into a church, you look like, yeah, we're happy, 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 and our theology is perfect, but there's no real sense that, you know, anybody, those people really like each other. I mean, they really love each other. They commune with each other. They put up with each other. Do they walk with each other? Do they honor each other? And it just kind of sort of looks all plastic. And L.A.'s got enough of that as its own. Here's the catch for all of us. If we don't know this love, if we don't know the affection of God, if we don't understand or comprehend that he's particularly fond of you, how on earth will we ever be able to practically offer that type of love to family, friends, and our culture? So once again, we're brought back to our own enjoyment of the gospel 
and the reality of those gospel truths taking root in our lives so that we can say we've experienced this love and now I know what it is to give it away. On a number of occasions over the course of my life and the latest was this past summer when I had to buy a home on a pastor's salary here in California, my father has come to the rescue. And I'm not talking about my heavenly father, of course, in an eternal sense, yes. I'm talking about my dad. My dad, like most dads, including myself with my own teenagers, is phenom- was phenomenally stingy when he was dealing with me as a high school student. Dad, can I have five bucks? No, go wash the car, I'll give you five bucks. Dad, can I do this? You can work for it, Sure. I mean, I feel like I'm being too generous with my kids, and if you'll listen to one of them, they'll tell you that, uh, you know, I'm cheap. I'm like, I'm just not rich. I don't have all the money in the world to give you. Well, this was certainly the case with my father. When I was a student in his home, you know, it was, it was impossible to get change out of the man, let alone full-fledged contributions to my... But he was obviously paying a lot of bills behind the scenes, that which I did not know at the time. Quick as I got out of his house, I want you to know my dad has on varying occasions come and said, how can I help you? My dad's sweet too. Uh, (laughs) On the three or four times when I've gotten myself in a financial pinch as an adult, um, I will get the request halfway out of my mouth and he will interrupt me. So I'll go, hey dad, you know that one time I remember out of seminary, I lost my job three months before I graduated from seminary and so I had to live off of my Discover card for three months. And that $5,000 followed us around for years and the interest kept piling up. And, and I came to him and I said, Dad, uh, you know, I've got this issue with my credit card. And I was wondering, and he goes, hey, how can I help you? Because that interest is going to kill you. Where, and, and, and I just remember thinking, what a gracious act for him to not make me beg him <laughs> for the money. And just how different that was than when I was 17. And I just remember thinking, that's really amazing. And then most recently, I needed a down payment for a house. And a down payment for a house in California is like a house in Florida. I mean, it's, it's a whole different animal. And I go, Dad, uh, you know, I, 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 I need to, can I borrow some money for a down payment for a house? I'll pay you back. And my parents generously said, you know, you pay us back after the kids get through college. Don't worry about it. Get your kids through college and then worry about paying this back. And I remember thinking, They have set, he has set for me a pattern as to how I'm going to deal with my children. And while now I'm trying to teach them certain responsibilities, Carolyn and I have already set aside what life is going to look like for us as adults and how are we going to help our kids get into Christian, pay for Christian school and and all the things we're thinking about. How are we going to be a blessing to our kids? This is something I learned from my father and something that you and I both that you and I both can learn from our Heavenly Father and lavish on others the same sort of caring, self-denying love. And friends, this is when the gospel, the glory of the gracious Savior is seen in us and he is glorified. Let's pray to that end that we'd be that kind of church. Father, it would be easy for us to talk in terms of being good or thinking that what it meant.